Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture Presents Great News A teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the Law of Moses, and the Kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com. Find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. Matthew 26 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things. So we'll go ahead and stop right there. That's been sort of our clue that one of these discourse segments has ended. So we've talked about the outline, the layout of Matthew. And we began the first couple of chapters is Jesus being born. And then the meat of Matthew, the middle of Matthew is these five Discourses were, uh, they're all preceded by narrative. So narrative and discourse, these five sections. And like I have on the screen here, I've kind of given them these names. You have the, the, the kingdom announced, which includes the Sermon on the Mount, what the kingdom will look like when it is being lived out. The second discourse is kingdom authority. Uh, the discourse there is the missionary discourse where he sends the disciples out two by two. Kingdom arrival. Uh, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the king, and uh, the kingdom is actually here. And here's what's going to have to change uh, now because of that. And you have the kingdom parables discourse. The kingdom is like. You have a lot of parables uh, about that. The fourth uh, narrative and discourse is about kingdom action. And so the discourse here is the what's called the community regulations discourse which is kind of a boring and clinical sounding title, but what it means is, um, okay, the kingdom is here and you you all disciples are in the kingdom. So here are the ways that you're going to have to start living your life now. So there's some parallels to, you know, say Sermon on the Mount, but instead of sort of general, here's how people should live. Now it's, okay, you're disciples. Here's, here's the way that you need to live with each other. And here are some of the, the repercussions for um, living in the kingdom, persecution, these kinds of things. What's going to happen is the kingdom is active. And then uh, the kingdom age and the discourse you have here is the Olivet Discourse or the Mount, Mount of Olives Discourse, which is what we looked at in our last lesson. Uh, 
And it is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple and leads into talking about judgment and talking about um, the tough times that are going to come for disciples. But uh, it's the really the labor pains. It's the birthing of the, the kingdom age when there will no longer be the kingdom living in the world's age, but the world will fade away and there will only be the kingdom left. But pretty much all of Jesus's uh, stories and parables in this final discourse are about judgment and in particular uh, the judgment day and who's going to be in and who's going to be left out and a lot of stark language and uh, stark consequences in that discourse. And I've got them arranged on the screen in the way that I do, because we've been talking about chiastic structure, which is an Old Testament concept. It's the way a lot of the Old Testament stories are structured, where you have a story told in a certain order, A, B, C, D, E, and then something happens. We call that the chi. Chi looks like a, like a, uh, the Greek letter chi looks like our letter X. And the Kai changes everything. It's the turning point. It's the crossroads, if you will. That's, again, that's that Kai idea. The Kai changes everything. So you have the story A, B, C, D, E. Then you have the Kai. And then the story is told in reverse order, but with everything now being changed because of that Kai. So you have E prime, D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. And so part A and part A prime parallel each other, but they're different because of the Kai. B and B prime parallel each other, but they're different because of the chi. C and C prime parallel each other, but they're different because of the chi. That's the idea of the chiasmus or the chiasm, chiastic structure. And what we've seen, my, I've made the um, assertion that the five big discourses in Matthew are a kind of chiastic structure. Uh, when Jesus talks about the Sermon on the Mount, there's this dichotomy between what it means to be religious and what it means to be a disciple. And he's announcing that the kingdom is coming in the kingdom age, which is its parallel discourse. Again, you are talking about judgment and you have this idea of the religious who think they're going to be in, but they're really not. And the disciples who actually obey what the master has commanded. And once again, it's painting a picture of what the kingdom is going to look like when it fully comes to fruition. In the kingdom authority, you have the missionary discourse where Jesus is sending the disciples out and giving them authority and showing them, you know, what it means to, to be a disciple of his in the kingdom action, which is sort of its parallel. He's about to send them out into the, the whole world and he's letting them know you're going to experience persecution and, and, but here, here's the way you got to live. You got to live contrary to the world, these kind of things. And the kingdom arrival, well, that's the Kai. That's the one in the middle. That's the one that changes everything. This is the one where Jesus says, you know, I'm the king. And that's what changes everything when he's really recognized as uh, the Messiah, and, and for what all that means, being the Son of God. So now we've finished the five discourses. And again, we know that. Uh, we have a clue to that in the text because of this first verse that we just read, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things. So each of these discourses ends um, with some phrase, when Jesus finished saying these things, or something like that. That's the first phrase of, of the next section. And so, again, just like an act break, we have it here when Jesus finished saying all these things. And so Matthew, the storyteller, is letting us know all of the talking is done. All the discoursing is done. All the teaching is done. And so now we're moving into the final section of Matthew, the act three of Matthew. 
Act one is sort of his birth. Act two is these five discourses. Act three is Matthew 26 through 28, uh, what's known as the humiliation and exaltation of the Messiah. We're going to look at pretty much just the first part of that tonight, Matthew 24 and 25, uh, from the Last Supper all the way through the crucifixion. So uh, I'm going to read through the text, make a few notes along the way, and, um, and then we'll be done. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest who was named Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out thirty pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So, main thing I want to point out in this section is, once again, a little miniature chiastic structure. Let's go back to the text and look at it. Right in the beginning, verses uh, 3 and, and uh, three through 5, we have the chief priest and everybody, the high priest, the courtyard at Caiaphas' house, and they are conspiring to find a way to kill Jesus. Then in the middle, we have the anointing at Bethany, where Jesus does, in the eyes of a certain disciple who is more interested in money than in Jesus, Jesus does this wasteful thing in his eyes. And so then you have verses 14 through 16, where you have one of the 12, the man called Judas Iscariot. Judas goes to the chief priests and gives them the way that they've been looking for, the way to betray them. So you see the parallels there. We start out in the courtyard of the high priests, they're finding, wanting to find a way to kill Jesus. We have this very humble act that's done by this woman that seems to be a wasteful act in the eyes of the disciples, particularly Judas. And so the parallel then, the A prime, the parallel is that Judas provides the way to the high priests for Jesus to be killed. Another thing to note here is Judas Iscariot's name will be remembered forever. Um, you know, the, the the great betrayer of all time. His name is synonymous with betrayal. And yet here's this woman who does this beautiful thing, this very humble act, and we don't even know her name. So uh, there's a real lesson in humility there. When someone uh, seeks to do something for themselves, they may end up making a name for themselves. 
And yet here's this woman who does this very humble thing, goes out of her way to do it. Uh, it's clear with all the kingdom talk in Matthew, all the Messiah talk, all the Christ talk, Christ and Messiah are interchangeable terms. They just come from, from different language backgrounds. In the word Christ, you, you, you understand the word christened. That's all either of those words mean. It means anointed one. That's what it means. So in the same way that uh, Samuel anointed David as king and before him anointed Saul as king by pouring oil on them, literally um, putting an ointment on them, right? Pouring, an, uh, doing an anointing in the same way that he poured oil on them. That's what this chosen one means. Someone that, that has been anointed someone. And so what she's doing is she's literally anointing Jesus. She is pouring a, a balm on him, but what she's doing, she could have done it with olive oil, but instead she does it with this very uh, expensive perfume. And Jesus goes even farther and says, she's preparing me for burial in the uh, burial custom. Once someone died, then they would be uh, wrapped in linen and they would be wrapped up with spices and, and covered in perfume. And the reason would be because the grieving process would take about seven days and you would spend seven days just treating the body with, with spices and with perfumes because obviously when it begins to rot, it begins to smell bad, right? And so for a week, they would treat with spices and, and perfumes and these sorts of things. And then after uh, a period of time, usually after a year or so, the bones, all the skin and the, the muscle and everything has decayed. And so what's left is pretty much just the bones. And so they will come back to the grave slot where they've left the body. They'll collect the bones and put them in an ossuary, which is a, a stone box about yay big. And it looks kind of like a casket, but it's big enough just to, to hold the now disconnected bones of a human being. And that was the way people were buried at this particular time. If you go to Jerusalem now, you can see ossuaries uh, all over the place. And we've discovered some from antiquity, some from the time of Jesus. And uh, so you can, you can look, I've showed pictures of those before. You can look at those. And so Jesus takes this anointing that this woman is doing, and he's uh, adding even a second meaning to it. She's preparing me for my burial, reminding everyone he's got to die. Right. And you can see still the unbelief of the disciples. So let's go on. So Judas uh, is now looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Verse 17, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. He replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas the betrayer replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. So this gives us a time frame here. It tells us it's on the first day of the unleavened bread. Uh, which would be uh, Passover, would make this a Passover meal. And yet most biblical scholars think that this was not a Passover meal. There's a lot of uh, debate and discussion about it. When you read God, John's gospel, John seems to indicate that it was the night before the Passover, that Jesus is slaughtered, Jesus is killed on the cross, 
uh, on Friday. And the Friday was the day that they slaughtered the lambs for Passover. There's lots of talk in John about wanting to do things before Passover. And uh, so there's question of some, someone is sort of moving things around for narrative benefit. And uh, a lot of people put that on John and say, John's trying to make some 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 theological points. John's trying to make some narrative points. And so it's much easier to go with the chronology that seems evident for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which I'll agree, and to just sort of assume John is making some theological points. But the fact of the matter is, it's, it's a little hard to reconcile. Um, so was it a Passover Seder or not, this Last Supper that we're about to read? Was it a Passover Seder or wasn't it? Uh, I've always believed that it was. Many of you, I'm sure, believe, have always been told that it was. Uh, a lot of biblical scholars will say it probably wasn't. It was probably the night before. Um, and then he was uh, killed on Friday, and Friday night would have been the Passover. Um, the, the, the answer is we really don't know. The answer is we can't say definitively um, which one of these is being chronolo chronologically accurate and which which ones are being uh, are you know are telling us a, a narrative part of the narrative, and so it's a difficult detail to reconcile. We have to admit that. But the real question here, if we're asking about theology, if we're asking about doctrine, if we're asking about what do we learn, the real question is: Does it matter? Does it matter if it was Passover Seder or not? And the answer is not really, because it was at Passover time. It was at Passover time, and so in the same way, so like my 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 brother. Uh, his wife, Melissa, and their family, they celebrated Christmas Eve. They celebrated Christmas on Christmas Eve. That's just what they always did. They would uh, leave and, and, and come back, and, and Santa came on Christmas Eve, and they opened all their presents uh, uh, on, Christmas, on Christmas Eve, and then they just had Christmas Day to, to spend together and, and sort of rest. Our family did it differently. We went to bed on Christmas Eve, and then I woke up very, very early on Christmas morning, uh, and when it was time enough. Mom would always set a time. If it's before this time, you can't wake us up. And uh, when it was time, I would wake everybody up and because I wanted to see those toys, right? I wanted to go and see what Santa brought. And we would do our Christmas on Christmas morning. And then we would go join mom's side of the family on Christmas day for a big Christmas meal in, in the early afternoon. So if you have Christmas dinner, Christmas Eve, and you have Christmas dinner on Christmas day, what's the difference? Is one of those not Christmas dinner just because it's not on the 25th? Still, Christmas is in the air. The ideas of Christmas are all there. Any analogies you make to Christmas on the 24th are still going to be well valid. They're still going to run deep. So, um, you know, it, it may matter to, to, to some people or it may matter if you're a historian or something like that. Um, exactly trying to pinpoint when this dinner was. Was it on Passover? What was it the night before Passover? Theologically, learning-wise, it really doesn't matter because it was during Passover. They had come to Jerusalem for Passover. Remember, all these guys lived in Galilee. So to travel down to Jerusalem, they would only do that for the special festival. And so they're here. They're here for Passover. It's a special time. Anything Jesus would have said about the lamb, about the breaking of the bread, about the wine, all of those Passover connections about painting blood on the doorpost and, and the sacrificial lamb and all those things, all those analogies are all valid no matter what uh, what the meal was. So if you do study on this and you see that there is, is some confusion about the date that you can't really um, settle, then just know that it's okay because when you're when you get to the point, what's the point here? What's the point Jesus is trying to make? You realize yeah, the specifics on that. Don't necessarily uh, don't necessarily matter. 
Uh, so let's let's go on and uh, keep reading about the uh, the Last Supper now. Oh, well, one last thing I do want to say about this passage is we see that Judas is sitting beside Jesus. When you read Gospel of John, John sort of indicates how everyone was laid out, and I won't go into detail on that. But what you learn is uh, John is leaning up against Jesus, so John is at Jesus's right hand, and who's dipping into the bowl where Jesus has his left hand? Well, that is Judas. And so remember back when James and John, their mother comes and says, I want one to sit at the right and one to sit at the left. Jesus says, hey, you don't know what you're asking. You don't want him to sit at the left. And you also notice that this goes right with the sheep and the goats parable, just in the paragraph before this, at the end of chapter 25, that the sheep will be on the right, but the goats, they'll be on the left and they'll be cast out. And where's Judas? He's, he's sitting on the left. So let's continue uh, reading here the first Lord's Supper. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many uh, for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This was a typical practice of Jesus. Often went to the Mount of Olives to pray. This is how Judas knows where to find him, even though he's no longer with them during this whole section. Notice that Judas is not there um, to take the bread and to take the cup. Then Jesus said to them, tonight, all of you will fall away. Because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. Peter gets a lot of grief for this because we know what's about to happen. Those of us that know the story, but look at the next phrase. And all the disciples said the same thing. How many of the disciples all ran away when uh, they came to arrest Jesus? All of them. So uh, Peter rightfully deserves some grief, but so did the rest of them. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And I should have pulled up a photo for one, um, but I, I didn't think to do that. But it's basically, it's a big round stone and there's a post going down the middle of the stone, and then there is a wedge-shaped uh, cone stone that is sitting upon it, and uh, it's got a stick sort of sticking out of it, kind of like a kind of like a spinning top almost. And the idea is you would hook a donkey or something like that to the stone, and, as, and you would have the donkey walk around the stone, and as the donkey walked around the stone, that conical stone would roll on the big flat round stone and you would put olives on the round stone. And as that conical stone rolled over them, it would crush them and squeeze all the oil out. And then the, the oil would run off of the stone and would um, uh, you, you could, be, could then be collected and so that's why the, the the stone that sits on top of it is conical, so it can it can roll around that flat stone without rolling off onto the ground. And so they go to this place called the Gethsemane. It's called the Mount of Olives. Obviously, there's olive trees everywhere. There's olive trees all over the place in 
in um, Israel. I have been to uh, the area of the Mount of Olives, the area where Gethsemane would have been. And there are trees there, olive trees, that are over 2,000 years old. Big, stocky, ancient, old-looking trees. They really are over 2,000 years old. That means there are trees that are still in Jerusalem today that you can go and look at that were there at the time of Jesus. Quite possibly trees Jesus prayed under during his time at the Mount of Olives. And if you're lucky and you get there before they come sweeping everything up, sometimes leaves fall off the trees and they fall onto the walkway. You're not allowed, obviously, to reach in and pull anything off. But if you find leaves on the ground and you can pick them up and stick them in your pocket, then um, you can do that. I'm not sure if you're supposed to do that, but I know that it's possible. Okay, uh, so Jesus is praying in the garden called Gethsemane. And notice the imagery there. Jesus is being pressed like an olive. He's being squeezed uh, so that every last drop comes out. And what's coming out? It's olive oil. It's that anointing idea all over again. Uh, verse 36, continuing, and he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Notice he only takes these three. We've talked about discipleship contexts before that you've got feeding of the 5,000, Sermon on the Mount. Then you've got uh, speaking to groups of disciples. Then you've got the 12 that are following him around everywhere, sort of the personal circle. And then you have this transparent circle, Peter, James, and John that he takes on very special missions such as this one. They're the only three that are privy to these really special moments. Uh, verse 38, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Uh, or other versions say, not my will, but yours be done. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so you couldn't stay awake with me one hour? I mean, Peter just got done saying he'd die for him. I'll die with you, uh, but I can't stay awake. That's too tall an order. Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. So Jesus does this very intense praying before the events that are about to take place, which are all very intense. The disciples don't really understand what's about to happen. And so they, I guess, don't see a great need to pray deeply as Jesus is doing. But what you're going to see contrasted is the prayerful life versus the unprayerful life. Those who are really steeped in prayer, like Jesus, go through trial and tribulation with calmness, with silence, with peace, with understanding about their, their place in life, their place in world, their place in God's plan. Those who, who don't pray, like Peter, like James and John, when trouble comes, what happens? They run, they betray, they lie, they curse, they're ashamed, they weep, they, they beg for forgiveness. And so in this simple setup here in Gethsemane, you're seeing 
the very beginning of the difference between the prayerful life and the uh, unprayerful life. Uh, verse 47. I think my camera's cutting out here and there, but you guys will be okay. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, so there's groups of people that had gathered around to, to see what was going to happen and to sort of come after him, like a almost like a, going after the, the beast and Beauty and the Beast or in Frankenstein. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. So there's uh, Caiaphas's house, which you can still visit in Jerusalem. There's actually a church that's been uh, built on top of it. And the church that's built on top of it is uh, in, in um, basically in, in honor or in memory of St. Peter. And it's, uh, forget the actual name of it, but it translates loosely to Church Church of the Rooster. And it's all about what's about to happen here with, with Peter and the rooster. But it's Caiaphas's house. It's built on top of the remnant of Caiaphas's house. And what you will see, if you were able to uh, see these photos, when you go inside, they've excavated what would have been sort of Caiaphas's uh, judging area. And... Um, in the middle of it, there is a hole in the floor and you can look through the hole in the floor and see two floors down. So I want you to imagine a three-story building and on the first story, meaning, meaning the top story, because it's, it's going down into the ground. So the, the, on the first story, the top story is where you have Caiaphas, the high priest meeting and doing business, doing high priest business. Then uh, th um, through the hole in the floor, the next floor down, the second floor down is a, is, uh, like a jail holding cell. And there's probably, uh, six or eight sort of jail cells down there. They're just really, uh, sort of cubbies carved out of the rock. And there's a rope running through, um, the opening so that you could tie someone's hands and basically shackle them to the uh, the chain or the rope that's going through the opening. They wouldn't really have anywhere to go. And they're standing there with their, their arms uh, chained up in the air. And then the third floor, the bottom floor below that is a dungeon. And it's a room about the size of my living room. It's not, not a very big room, probably 10 by 10, 12 by 12, something like that. And that hole from the first floor opens up into this dungeon. 
And the reason for that is this, it's so that the people doing business in the high priest area can speak uh, through um, relay guards, someone standing at the top of the hole and someone down there in the dungeon. Uh, they can speak through relays down through the hole to the person in the dungeon. So the person in the dungeon is not in the same space as the high priest. So in Jesus's case, if he's beaten or bloody, or if they consider him a sinner, a blasphemer, all that, he's not in the actual presence of the high priest. So that way the high priest does not become unclean. So the big photo that we're looking at here on the left, this is taken from the second floor, from the middle floor. So over on the left of that photo, you can see some of those alcoves there that they used as holding cells, holding cells. Directly in front of you, they've carved out a couple of holes so that you can see down into that dungeon. And what you see there is actually steps leading down to that dungeon. Um, you, you see a, a more modern staircase on the far wall. That's obviously been built more recently. But uh, you see and, and if, as you, if you if you were taking this photo that you could just walk forward and walk down these steps and then it just drops off down into that dungeon. And that's pretty much what they would do. They would take you, they'd walk you down the steps and they'd toss you down in the dungeon and you fall eight feet down there. They were obviously were not very concerned for your safety. If you look at the photo on the top right, that's what it looks like to look up the hole from down in the dungeon. And then the photo there on the bottom right that shows you uh, about how big it is. That's a, a group of people in there. And this photo is taken from the, the, the more modern staircase. So it's kind of a reverse of the photo on the left. So again, on the top floor, you've got Caiaphas's high priest area. The second floor is this big photo where you've got the holding cells. And then the, the third bottom floor is where this dungeon is. And so Jesus would be down in this dungeon and all the communication between him and the high priest, uh, Jesus would be speaking up through this hole, or he would be speaking to a guard that was with him. And the guard would be yelling through the hole. There'd be a guard at the top of the hole relaying what was being said to Caiaphas. And again, when, when you read John, you see that uh, John keeps, Gospel of John keeps saying, uh, uh, because of Passover, they they wanted to do this, that, and the other thing because of Passover. They wanted to stay clean because of Passover. And this was a way for Caiaphas to remain clean, even with Jesus being, you know, bloody or um, uh, just being a criminal or whatever uh, he was considered to be, being a blasphemer. Caiaphas would not have to be in his presence. Caiaphas would not be touched by him. There was no chance of, uh, you know, the 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 criminal slinging blood onto Caiaphas and making him unclean or spitting on him, anything like that. And so that's that's the way this was done. You, you, you see this again when um, in the book of Acts, when Paul is speaking to the high priest and he says something and a, a guard near him smacks him and says, how, how would you speak to the high priest this way? And Paul says, oh, I didn't realize I was speaking to the high priest. Now you can kind of understand why he wouldn't know because he can't see. He doesn't know who he's talking to. He's just shouting up at whoever's shouting back down to him. And the guard who is near him, that'd be the guard down in the dungeon with him. And he would smack him and say, oh, don't you know who you're talking to? Probably, again, this, this very hole, this very dungeon uh, in the house of the high priest in Jerusalem. Okay, so they arrest uh, Jesus and they take him before Caiaphas and the council. So we're in verse 57. Verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Peter's like sneaking into the courtroom, basically, and kind of sitting in the back to see what happens. 
Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So they're just looking really for any old excuse that they can take to the Roman government. So uh, the Jewish government was not allowed to put anyone to death. And occasionally they would stone people because that was um, something that was allowed by the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law allowed it because it was a community punishment that was happening, a community capital punishment. But the Jews in the first century took advantage of it because the Romans couldn't prosecute anybody because they would come in and ambush somebody and stone them to death and then all run away. And then who do you arrest? And who was the one that actually killed him? And how could you catch anybody? And they might catch one or two of them. You can't catch all of them. And so they would uh, usually use stoning. And you see that they attempt to stone Jesus a number of times as you read the Gospels. But now they've decided that he needs to be crucified. And what's the reason for that? Well, the reason for that is when you're crucified, you are nailed to a piece of wood, you're hung on a tree, and the law says anyone hung on a tree is cursed. And so he's gotten such a following, he's so popular, the people love him so much, and and Jesus hates the Pharisees so much, that the Pharisees want to make sure the crowd understands this Jesus guy is cursed and anyone who follows him is cursed. And the only way they can do that is if they crucify him. They don't get the cursing part if they only stone him to death. They have to crucify him, which obviously they can't do. The Roman government has to do that. So they have to find some recourse that um, where the Roman government will agree to kill Jesus. So um, they bring up sort of these kind of sedition charges uh, going in verse 61. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, we've seen Jesus say some things kind of like that, but not really this. And um, it's possible Jesus said something like this. He certainly uh, said, tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. Of course, he was talking about his own body. And just in the chapters previous, he was talking that the temple, that the actual temple would be torn down sometime soon. And so it's conceivable that maybe he did really combine those things and and say something like this, or maybe this person just misheard it. But we, we see they're looking for false testimony. So these guys are trying to twist Jesus's words into something. Uh, so the high priest stands up and says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. And it's interesting in Mark and uh, I believe in John and maybe in Luke, he says, I am, uh, or I am, as you have said, something like that. The Hebrew phrase, I am, that's basically the name of God from back in Exodus, where Moses meets God in the burning bush. And he says, well, who should I say that you are? And God says, you know, I am that I am, or I am who I am, or really just, he just says, I am, I be, I exist. Existing, I exist is what he says. And so, you know, we sing the songs about the great I am. And so when Jesus answers the question, I am, not only does he answer the question in the affirmative, but the mere statement alone is essentially the name of God, which is a blasphemous thing to utter. And it, everybody loses their minds. And so he says, but, I, but look what he follows it up with. So he says, I am, or in this version, he says, you have said so. In other words, yes, that's correct. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Once again, drawing on that Daniel, Son of Man imagery. And what is he telling them? He's telling them, you're judging me. But in a little while, I'll be judging you. That's what this phrase means. 
verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes, which is again, is the, the way you're supposed to respond when you hear blasphemy. It's just such a disgraceful thing. You tear your robes, tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? In other words, we don't need any other witnesses. We all heard it. He just blasphemed in front of everybody. That's what we needed. We got it. What is your judgment? Well, they answered, he deserves death which is the punishment for blasphemy. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? He probably would have had a cloth bag over his head as part of the arrest. And so they are hitting him saying, hey, since you're a prophet, you must know who it was that hit you. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl comes up to him and uh, we'll skip this just for time's sake. Peter denies that he knows Jesus uh, even uh, swearing a curse on himself. And as soon as he does, the rooster crows and he's reminded that Jesus told him that he would do that. And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. Peter and Judas both betray Jesus. Peter denies him. Peter, uh, sorry, uh, Peter denies him. Judas betrays him. We use those different words, but what's the difference? Well, the difference is Peter is sorrow, uh, full of sorrow for what he's done and comes back to Jesus for repentance. And we see a beautiful image of that in John chapter 21. Uh, Matthew chapter 27. Uh, when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to, to Pilate, the governor. Then we see that Judas uh, hangs himself. And so this is where Judas does not seek forgiveness, but instead gives up, hangs himself. And uh, that place is called the Field of Blood to this day. Another place you can visit in Jerusalem. Let's skip down to verse 11. Jesus before Pilate, uh, he asked, are you the king of the Jews? Now notice he doesn't say Christ or Messiah, but to a Roman, it would have been the same thing. The christened one, the anointed one. Uh, if you're a Roman and you're the christened one, the anointed one, that means that you are the half man, half God, Caesar. You're the, you're, you're the king. And if you're claiming to be a king, then yes, that would be a treasonous thing. And that would be worthy of putting somebody to death. And so he says, are you the king of the Jews? This is the same phrase that he used uh, to, about Herod. Herod was the king of the Jews. Um, I, I should say also that a lot of people for a long time thought Pilate was just a Christian invention. Thought was just uh, that Pilate was a fictional character. That he was just an invention of Christian uh, mythology. That he was invention of the Christian uh, scriptures, and that um, that nothing about him was was real because there was no archaeological evidence that he existed. Until at Caesarea Maritime, as they were doing some excavations on the uh, palace there, they found a, a, essentially a plaque, part of a plaque that essentially says this is the place where Pontius Pilate, who was the prefect of, uh, of Judea, this is where he lived. And so there you have it. Now you have archaeological evidence found just within the last century that Pilate is indeed a real person, was the, um, the, 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 the prefect of Judea at the time. And um, so Pilate's uh, Pilate is in charge. He's in Jerusalem at the time. He's looking at Jesus and um, he says, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? So we know from John that the Jew, the Jewish crowd is outside. They don't want to come into Pilate's because Pilate is a Gentile. He's not cleaned his house of leaven, which is something that you do at Passover time. And if you were to enter a house with leaven in it, you would then be unclean for Passover. So... <clears throat> Uh, so all the Jews are outside, but you can imagine they're yelling, they're shouting, they're shouting accusations, blasphemer, all this kind of stuff. 
Pilate says, don't you, don't you hear? And um, verse 14, but he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. And so Pilate really doesn't know what to do with him. So he offers them Barabbas. If you know any, even a little bit about Hebrew, then you know Bar means son of. So just, you know, you have um, uh, Barnabas, Barnabas, Bar means son. Nabas means encouragement. He was the son of encouragement. And uh, you have Simon Bar-Jonah is another name that you see in scripture. That's Simon, son of Jonah. And here we have Bar-Abbas. Well, what does Abbas mean? What does Abba mean? What well, means father? We know that too. So here you have a man who was a seditious, he was basically kind of a terrorist who was going to overthrow the Roman rule by force to restore a, a Judean government, to restore an Israeli government. And his name is Son of the Father. You see God winking at you through the story here, right? And so uh, the crowd wants someone released and Pilate says, who do you want released? And they say, give us Barabbas. What's his name? Son of the Father. Give us the Son of the Father. That's who we want released. The irony is um, it's impossible to miss. So um, they ask for Barabbas. Barabbas is released and said, what should I do with Jesus? They say, crucify him. And so Pilate washes his hands of the matter. And we should not say that Pilate is, is doing anybody any favors or that he's done any kind of magnanimous thing or that he's even a sympathetic character. He's basically saying, look, you want him killed? That's fine with me. I'm just washing my hands of it. I don't want anybody saying it was my fault because then Caesar's going to come down here and cut my head off. You know, this is this is on you guys. So uh, Jesus is is mocked verses 27 and onward. And then we get to the crucifixion. Uh, I have a lot that uh, I'd kind of like to say about the crucifixion. And um, I think we'll just leave that for the next lesson. And let's just reflect a little bit before we finish for the night on what we've looked at. So we see Jesus instituting the, the Lord's Supper. And what he says is, this is how you're going to remember me, right? Every time you do this, you're going to remember me. We read that in, in, in Paul's account of this, this same uh, scenario. Everything in Matthew has been leading up to talking about the kingdom. That's the big theme in Matthew is the kingdom. And here Jesus is the king. And this is his coronation. It's arrest. It's scandal. It's desertion. It's denial, it's betrayal, it's swearing, it's cursing, it's spitting, it's hitting, it's striking, it's scourging, whipping, bleeding, pain, shame, cursed death. This is the coronation of the king. And the only magnanimous character in this whole two chapters, besides Jesus, is the woman who anoints him. Once again, Matthew shows us these humble characters, these people who would otherwise be forgotten about. Women, children, uh, amongst his Jewish readers, Gentile characters, people that would otherwise be forgotten. Matthew highlights them and highlights their humility, highlights their faith. Because the, the, in talking about the kingdom, the overwhelming point Matthew is making over and over again from the beginning is this. Just because you've grown up religious, just because you were born in the pew, just because you were born with a, with a Bible in your hand, just because you went to lads to leaders and vacation Bible school, 
It's because you went to, to church camp or because you went to a Christian college. That doesn't mean anything if you're not trusting and following Jesus. And if you had none of those things, if, if, if you're just a loser, an outcast, a heroin addict, a, a murderer, a, a thief, a, 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 um, been through serial marriages, been a promiscuous, an alcoholic, addiction, if that's your growing up, if you missed out on vacation Bible school and church camp and Sunday school and uh, praise and worship services, if you missed out on listening to K-Love and reading the daily Bible verse and, and Bible journaling, if you missed out on all that stuff, but you come to a place in your life where you abandon everything to trust and follow Jesus, then you're a disciple. It's not about you know, the radio station you listen to. It's not about the building you're in once a week. It's not about, um, you know, the, 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 the church on your business card. It's not about the, the church Facebook group that you're a part of. None of that matters. The religious stuff doesn't matter. It's not about a religion. It's about discipleship. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's about trusting and following him. And it's about helping other people to trust and follow Jesus. Because Jesus has said over and over again, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. You're going to be one of those religious people who think you're doing everything right. And Jesus is going to say, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are because you weren't working along beside me. I know the people that are working with me and they may not look how you expect. And so in these two chapters, with all this intense stuff going on with, with disciples, with, with Pharisees who are men of scripture, men of the law, men of teaching, men of, men of understanding, and supposedly men of wisdom, um, you, you, the most magnanimous character besides Jesus is this woman, this woman who comes into a, a leper's house and gives her very expensive perfume, this costly anointing to Jesus. So that's the question that I will leave you with tonight. Are you going through the motions? Are you checking the boxes? Are you part of the club? Or has it cost you something? Has it cost you something dear? Have you taken something that means something to you and, and poured it out on Jesus in preparation for a death, a burial, and a resurrection? Have you left everything? Have you denied yourself to take up your own cross to trust and follow Jesus? Because that's what Jesus wants. And that's who's going to be able to celebrate on the last day. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.